This is episode 65 of the Immunology Podcast, Primary Immunodeficiency Disorders, with Dr. Siobhan Burns. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Round. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoyed the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Siobhan Burns from the University College of London on the podcast to talk about her research on primary immunodeficiency disorders. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first... IUIS 2023 is just over one month away. The International Union of Immunological Societies Congress is taking place November 27th to December 2nd in Cape Town, South Africa. Visit IUIS2023.org to register and to check out the program. All right. Well, I, you know, by the, when this airs here, it'll be almost time for one of the most important American holidays of Halloween. I was about to say Christmas. No, it's too early for that. Close enough. No. <laughs> Thanksgiving. When was that? <laughs> you have a costume this year? I do not. I don't know. I think we were invited to a Halloween party, um, but I'm not that kind of person that, you know, thinks that the, I know some people that have already known for months whether we're going to wear it to this party. And I'm like, mm. so I'm not sure. I can always steal a lab coat from the lab. Be a scientist. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Would that be a costume if it's no. literally what you are? Technically, it's not. Uh, oh. One year we had a Halloween. It was a celebrity couples themed Halloween party. So my uh -huh. wife and I went as Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen from Game Ooh. of Thrones. And someone okay. had seen the most recent season, but it had been like six months and they got all mad. But I'm like, it's, oh. six months. it's not a spoiler anymore. If it's all the way to Ooh. Halloween for costumes. Like, I don't get yeah. it. Oh, wait, wait, no. And I'm like. All right. Okay. Well, you know, uh, I. I have, I think I'm going to start first today All right. uh, because I have a spooky story to share uh -oh. Uh -oh. about antigens from the crypt. Oh, nice. Nice. Or just nice. cryptic antigens. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make you a, a gastroenterologist at some point. Oh, yeah, they're crypts there too, aren't they? All right. Well. Uh, I thought I thought it would be funny. It sounded funny in my mind, but well, I will be talking about cryptic antigens, okay. uh, aka those antigens that weren't supposed to exist, but they come up and uh, you weren't expecting them, but they exist. So they go boo. They go boo. Exactly. They well, they're more. They go maybe peekaboo, or they're like just there. Look, I'm here. I'm being presented. You weren't expecting me, but I'm here. Okay. So the paper uh, I'm going to talk about first is called cryptic. MHC-E epitope for influenza elicits a potent cytolytic T-cell response, was published in Nature Immunology on the 12th of October. First author, Michael Hogan, from the lab of Lawrence Eisenlohr at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, so you know a neighbor of yours. And in this paper, um, I thought it was very cool. I, I always like these papers that describe something unexpected. I think those are the best. And in this case, they, they in this, this study, they describe, as I mentioned, and, and the title says, a, the representation of a viral antigen, which is actually an anti, a non 
I, I mentioned that it's not part of kind of the canonical proteins of the virus, but it is actually very efficiently presented on a particular MHC molecule, which is non is kind of described as non-classical. It's not the HLA, A, B, C, and their mouse counterparts, but it is this non-classical um, MHC MHCE protein. Uh, that is also known as QA1 in mice. And actually, HLAE has already been associated with the function of NK cells. Uh, it presents usually uh, a, a peptide that kind of prevents recognition by NK cells. But in this case, um, they actually show that they this, this particular MHC can present a viral a, a viral uh, antigen that is very becomes very important in directing the immune response against this virus. So what is the model? Influenza. So what basically do they do? The, these authors they started saying that they were looking for MHC class two restricted uh, uh, antigens. So they did an immunopeptidomic analysis uh, where they pulled down uh, a bunch of you know they 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 loaded. Um, they infect cells with with this virus. In this case, the PR8 is Puerto Rico of influenza uh, strain, which is very commonly used. And they uh, immunoprecipitate MHC2, and then they isolate the peptide ligands. They run a you know a liquid chromatography uh, with with mass spectrometry, this LCMS, very standard method of looking at the immunopeptidome, and they find a particular peptide. Uh, which they call MSL9, which is a uh, nine-amino uh, nine nine acid peptide that um, has, they, they find it quite strongly presented. Funny enough, so already a nine-nucleotide, uh, nine-amino uh, acid peptide doesn't is not common for presentation MHC2. That is already a bit strange. But then they show that, in fact, this peptide does not activate, if you load it on cells, it's not actually activating CD4 cells, it activates CD8 cells. So they end up showing that, in fact, it's not an MHC2-presented peptide. It's probably a contamination from their, from their uh, procedure in which they still picked up this, this particular peptide. And so they do a bunch of, uh, they show that they can activate CD8 cells, loading this peptide. And eventually, they uh, they they show that in fact uh, this peptide is not loading on any of the traditional MHC class one molecules, but if instead on this non-canonical MHC, what is known as MHC one B molecule, and from this the sub the subtype HLA-AE, or as known in uh, the uh, mouse system uh, is um, QA one. And what is very interesting is that when they try to, so the, the idea is when they started this, this project, they were looking, in fact, into cryptic uh, antigens. And in this case, cryptic antigens, because oftentimes when they, when you do when you look at immunopeptidomic, for example, uh, that occurs after infection, what you do is you, you have all the peptides that you pick up with, uh, with LCMS, and then you kind of cross-reference this peptide with the genome or like the, the, the known uh, proteins made by the viral genome. But in this case, they look at like every possible um, non-canonical protein. And this is how they find that, in fact, this peptide 
is derived from a weird uh, AUG codon, which is not the one that is used for most of the for the actual structural proteins or their actual useful proteins from the virus. So they show that this is a second AUG that is within one of the reading frames of the virus. And then it just happens so that this, this peptide is expressed, but because it's not really functional, probably gets very highly uh, derived into, uh, uh, gets degraded. And then that's probably why it's so abundantly present, so abundantly available for uh, loading into this uh, non-canonical MHC. And so I, according to the authors, and I have to admit, they did not do a lot of extensive research, but they say that this is the first case in which a cryptic antigen is shown to be presented uh, very highly in a, a antiviral response, because in fact, when they look at the, they use a, a dexamers, uh, so to look to for specificities against this MHC-E, um, HLA-E uh, peptide uh, complex, and they actually show that the amount of T cells recognizing this particular antigen is is substantial. It's pretty much comparable to canonical, so like the peptides being presented from derived from canonical uh, viral proteins on regular HLA. Um, and in fact, so in the early uh, stages of the infection, like 10% of the CD8 T cells are actually recognizing this cryptic uh, peptide in this in this non-canonical MHC, which I think is very it's quite quite remarkable. And as I mentioned, that Pothos said that this is the first uh, report of actually an, uh, a viral uh, cryptic uh, peptide driving such a large proportion of the immune response. And these cells, they actually become, you know, tissue resident memory cells. So they, they mount not only a, a, a robust initial response, but they also mount a robust um, um, memory response in the tissue. So overall, super cool. Um, they show, so this, this peptide MSL9 bound to this QOA1 uh, MHC. CD8 cells can pick up and recognize this peptide and they just really become polyfunctional and, and respond to the viral infection very strongly. Uh, quite unexpected, but I think, you know, I like it. You know, unexpected turns are the best. I wonder what makes this weird peptide that's not functional so good as an cryptic antigen or as an epitope? Well, the thing is that it it holds... So the, there's this, pep, this peptide that is the normal thing you find in this QA1 uh, MHC. And it looks like this MLS9 is quite similar to this QDM peptide, which is kind of the, the expected uh, occupant of the QA1 MHC. So uh they show they show that they compare the the amino acids and they're like the anchor uh the the anchor amino acids are very very similar so probably it's just the fact that this cryptic antigen has such a favorable uh sequence to bind this uh, it's kind of a coincidence i don't think the virus did it on purpose uh but just i think that's that's kind of the biochemistry of why this happens to be loaded on this on this particular mhc Hmm. Fascinating. That's super interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, let's see here. Do I have a good way to just segue into antigens or crips? 
Yeah, I mean, you were talking about viruses. I'm going to talk about one of the most scary infections, which is malaria. That's pretty scary. I mean, the bloodsuckers in the night, you know, that's that's transmitted the by the vampires. That's what's crazy. It's not the vampires themselves, right? No, it's the disease they bring. All right. So what's what about malaria? Other than the fact we haven't cured it yet. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no. So this one is clinically relevant. Atovoquinone resistant human malaria parasites failed to transmit by mosquito. First author is Victoria A. Balta. Last author is Teresa A. Shapiro. Nature Communication on the 12th of October. So there's a medication called atovoquinone, which is nice because it's considered a chemical vaccine. You can inject it and last for like a month or two. And so you don't have to remember to take your medication every day. The problem is, is this medication was also discovered to, and then they have a, a second adjunct that's added to this to make it really function as well to like enhance it. But anyways, they have a, there was known for a while that this medication induces Y267S, a mutation cytochrome B, uh, that is associated with the tovoquinone treatment failure in humans. All right. So that's just a thing that happens. Um, but, and they're like, okay, now you have treatment failure of this. So obviously you're just going to generate resistance to it and we can't use it. But there have been some data out that the, that the malaria post-infection didn't work as well. And so they really looked, went after this and tried to figure it out. So they generated in vitro, which is part of the difficulty. They had to make it by passaging it with the drug because they couldn't get it for many people who were infected and used the drug because it was replication incompetent. It's like, right, exactly. Like their ability, inability to do their initial work to have to regenerate it was the first clue. Probably not the first clue, probably a known problem, but it makes for a good story, right? So they then spend an entire paper showing how these post-mutated organisms suck, essentially. They don't survive in culture very well. They do transmission studies. They can't transmit. You, you, you give a bunch of mosquitoes it and you put it in with some mice and the mice don't get sick or die because it's replication incompetent. The titers are lower in the mice. They do it in a couple of diff, uh, different um, versions of mostly Plasmodium falciparum. I think they also... Uh, do it in P. vivex, um, I think at one point. But, but, but fundamentally, they go through this and demonstrate that the mutation actually helps too. So even if, you be, if your malaria becomes resistant to the drug, the malaria from the, that exists afterwards sucks. It, you, know, trend, you know, they use these humanized mice that have that a, a combination human immune system and human liver. So humanized to allow for the transmission of regular malaria and the wild type malaria infects just fine, does all its thing. But these ones that, you know, mutate organically just can't. And so this is, raises the question then of should you use this because it's going to generate um, this mutation that actually is survival incompetent. It helps that organism but not pass, it, pass itself on. And yeah, so they excuse me, do it in P. falciparum, but they also know that this mutation can occur in P. vivex. So for the first time ever, resistance to a medication actually has a good long-term effect? Is that what you're telling me? Not the first time, but yeah. 
I mean, there are some there. Are, yes, there. This is this has been seen before. Like, oh, that you can you can mutate your way out of dying, but then you can't mm -hmm. reproduce. Okay, that's pretty pretty cool. So does it mean we should still keep treating people with this, or what are the complications of this particular drug? It's a relatively safe, cheap drug. It's used for other uh, parasitic infections like uh, toxoplasmosis and stuff at higher uh -huh. doses. Um, it's very well tolerated. They just hadn't because they saw this mutation and thought and thought they were just going to have, you know, use it for six months, everything becomes resistant and then you're done. Yay. Now you're oh. resistant. And how long has this, this medication been on the market? It's ancient. It's okay. like old and generic in the extreme. I was not aware that. I, I thought there were some pills you could take if you were going to a malaria. Why are people still then getting so much malaria? We have this chemical vaccine because they don't would... use it because they think it's going to give you resistance that's the only reason correct okay all right but maybe that was wrong oh man is there a silver lining here i wish okay we can have some optimism in the science news sometimes i know sometimes sometimes all right i'm gonna go back to my halloween mode we're going to have a story about the body snatchers. In this case, pig body snatchers. Because this paper I'm going to talk about is about xenotransplantation. And also, I think it has a silver lining. Uh, not for the pigs, definitely for humans, but not for the pigs. So, paper is called Designed and Testing of a Humanized Person Donor for Xenotransplantation, uh, published in Nature. Uh, 11th of uh, October, and we've got a bunch of first authors, Ranith uh, Anand, Yaakov Lair, uh, David, uh, David Heya, Takayuki Hiroshi, Grace Lassiter, and Daniel Ferrell from uh, the labs of uh, Tatsuo Kawai at Harvard Medical School, and uh, Michelle Yeod and Wenning, and Wenning Quinn, Kin at a company called eGenesis that is also in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, that I guess is working on xenograph uh, uh, organs. And basically they show that a very viable uh, modified pig for making uh, organs that could potentially be used for human transplantation. So... Um, pigs are, have been used as models for humans uh, and medicine for a long time in many areas. I think like for surgery, for like orthopedics, but also for transplantation because uh, pigs are similar size. The organs are kind of size compatible, maybe you know, the smaller pigs. Um, however, pigs and pig uh, meat and pig uh, tissue has a couple of very immunogenic uh, properties. Uh, in particular, there's a couple of glycans that are known to be highly immunogenic. Uh, one of them is called is alpha-gal, actually uh, associated with uh, aller allergy to pig meat. Some people have it. They get it after a tick bite. I have a story of that. So that alpha-gal thing is to pig meat and beef meat and stuff. And this only emerged in the last like 20 years or less. And I was in North Carolina treating people in clinic with its emergence uh -huh. and saw some of the first cases. Ooh, yeah, it sucks. I heard once a podcast about it, like about this girl who became allergic. Allerg and people were like, you cannot be allergic to pig food. It's like, yeah, yeah, that happens. Yep. So life-changing experience. So that, that shows 
you know, there's these things. I have other other um, uh, other sugars uh, on their surface that also are problematic. Also, pigs uh, have uh, several uh, endogenous retroviral sequences that could be potentially uh, activated in an immunosuppressed uh, human with unknown uh, effects. So that's not not super cool. Um, and also, there's a lot of in certain like other incompatibilities or issues that have to do with you know the whole transplantation. You have a lot of inflammation, and then uh, it makes it easier for a xenograft to be recognized and uh, kicked out than a human. So the the authors of the study they kind of tackled down this, and they were and they made pigs. They genetically modified uh, a very cutely called. Uh, Yucatan miniature pig. Uh, they modified it in three different ways. On the first uh, uh, way, they used CRISPR to delete these three uh, um, spurious glycans, these three uh, pig-specific glycans, um, and they uh, knocked out or they kind of interfered with all of these retroviral uh, sequences uh, in the in the genome. And on top of that, they added a cassette expressing seven human genes, including uh, genes that uh, are part of the complement cascade in humans, uh, genes that are part of the coagulation pathway to reduce the 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 the, the risk of coagulation. Uh, CD a human CD forty seven, uh, which is important for is expressed in many innate immune cells, and the and the ligand SERP one uh, SERP alpha is expressed. Uh, it's, it's part of the innate recognition. Uh, and then other uh, another genes that have to uh, do with reducing inflammation and, and, and injury and apoptosis. Uh, they kind of put this in the mix as well, because the idea is that usually, uh, regardless of how careful the surgeons are, you have a certain level of damage. And this, this inflammation, this tissue inflammation can be kind of the trigger for a strong uh, re re rejection of the organ. Uh, and so they, and then they, they basically transplanted the kidneys from these mice, uh, from these, uh, pigs. So they had versions of the pigs with all the modifications, version of the pigs with only the glycans eliminated to see like, what is the effect of each of the individual parts. And they transplanted these kidneys into, uh, synomolgus monkeys. So this, uh, um, old world monkeys they're called and basically they they looked at what happened and they evaluated many uh there are many readouts on how do you evaluate the success of a uh, transplant uh whether they they looked into infiltration they looked into the health of the of the organ of course the 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 capacity of the kidneys to function and clean the uh, and remove uh things from the blood and uh, they also looked very closely into the complement activation because this is a very early, uh, it's a very quick early stage of the rejection, specific, particularly against xenografts. Uh, and they, and this, that's also why they have these particular genes added to to kind of prevent activation of the complement cascade in the from in the human in this case the the, the primate host. They actually saw that this this these genes did seem to make a difference in reducing. The activation, the complement, and this is already a good start. So they did a lot of uh, a lot of measurements, and, but basically the most important one was: did the monkey survive, and did the monkeys live with these new kidneys? And actually, many of them survived for a long time. The 
it was so the the comparison of the monkeys with these human genes was better. So these monkeys did better than the monkeys only with without the glycans. And one of the monkeys could survive for up to two years uh, using this uh, new kidney, this new uh, um, uh, pig kidney, which I think is a very good record for for uh, for this kind of system. So the the monk so the monkeys were immunocompromised so they were so they were immuno um, um, suppressed uh, so I think this is still a requirement uh, also they were like with before they were uh, they had a um, immunosuppression before the transplant even uh, but in, in general I think the authors were very very um, very happy with the results uh, and I think it's really cool that you, you know they, they made all this um, informed decisions about which genes to knock out. And, and I think this might be uh, a step closer towards actually being able to use uh, xenografts for, for transplantation. Uh, the availability of organs is, of course, a huge issue nowadays. Now that, that is really cool to see. I wonder, you know, I'm just, I'm thinking, and I'm like, well, what about the risk of cancer gene editing? But then the, it's going to be really a xenograft of cancer, and that's actually much easier to treat because it's going to, you know, be wildly antigenic because you only fixed a few of the antigens. Now, this is cool. Yeah. Piggly Wiggly. Yeah. Which, by the way, is a grocery store in the United States. It's called Piggly Wiggly in certain parts of the United States. What do they sell? It's just gro regular grocery? It's a grocery store like with a logo that's a pig, and it's called Piggly Wiggly. Does it have a wiggly tail? It does. Well, okay. curly. Yeah, you can go to your curly tail. Wiggly, wiggly. That is a sentence in certain parts of the United States. I don't think we have stores with such funny names over here. That's disappointing. <laughs> All right. All right. Move on. Next. We're wiggling on over to the next thing, also discussing organ transplantation. Look. There you go. Infection, infection, transplantation, transplantation. In science translational medicine, we have. Donor-derived dend regulatory dendritic cell infusion modulates effector CD8 T-cell and NK cell responses after liver transplantation. We have two first authors, Lillian M. Tran and Camila Macedo. Last author is Angus W. Thompson. All right. So there's been some ideas of if you have donors, and I think it's the same donor as who gives you the live, live liver transplants. This is live liver transplant where you take liver from people, cut it out, but don't, you know, cut all the liver out and then transplant that because liver grows back. So my understanding, because they don't say otherwise, and they seem to assume that I know this, is that they are also taking blood cells from the same people, which would make sense given how biology works. But I don't have the explicit sentence I can point to in the introduction to go, uh-huh, I'm not, I'm not crazy here. So that, that caveat being said, there's been a lot of study of, well, what if I got Treg? How can I, how can I tamp down the mean response, right? And can, you know, liver's relatively non-antigenic. It's one of the ones that you can get to lower levels of immunosuppression, but usually still need at least two drugs, but at lower levels. And they're like, well, what if I get rid of one of them, only have people on one drug? That would be great. That'd be a great sign of less immunosuppression. So in this study, they infused dendritic cells from the donor alongside the transplant. So what they do is they um, take blood out, leukophoresis, 
get dendritic cells with you know they they get monocytes essentially 14 days post transplant in vitro culture it with il4 gmcsf vitamin d3 and il10 for seven days get this dc reg product is validated regulatory dendritic cell and then infuse it day you know seven days before transplant the question is do these regulatory dendritic cells make you have less rejections they follow people 12 months out and measure how much immunosuppression they have and they drop one of their two drugs on average now this is a small trial we're like talking 11 and 11 people um but clinically you know there's good signs of you know they were able to read 23 percent of people off mycophenyl mofetil and on the tacrolimus therapy and that was only uh, only 11 people percent. So half was able to wean off otherwise. That's an improvement. It's double, still not, you know, even above 50%, but it's, it's good to start with. So they do a clinical trial and then they measure everything they can about these immune cells six ways to Sunday um, afterwards. But high level, you can wean off immunosuppression. That's what I care about clinically because that, that, and I don't care about the other measures if I don't have a reason <laughs> that they matter. So they see a reduction in peripheral T and NK cell subsets as a first big point. They have the infusion they see is uh, enrichment in the periphery of these tolerogenic DCs, which are CD163 and CD141 positive. A TH1 cytokine response are suppressed and they don't have a effector leukocyte immunophenotype after infusion. And then extending out, they also measure things like cytokines and, you know, there's less alloreactive CD4 and CD8 T cells from the participants compared to the control group. You know, the standard of care don't get this. Effector pathways are downregulated. They do single cell RNAC, can look at mapping and epitopes. And again, there's, there's less of the cells that are going to attack your transplant and less inflammatory signaling. And there's less T cell NK graft cell graft infiltration with these people who are treated, which all together is really cool. And that's really all I got to say is they measure all the things that you want them to measure. But figure one is the, is the money here because it shows you that there's a clinical response, even if it's a small trial. And this actually, this actually correlate, correlate with like less uh, opportunistic diseases or things like that, that because you get less immunosuppression. You get that far out, but yeah, but generally speaking, if you can get off an immunosuppressant, you're going to have less opportunistic infections over time. It All may right. take years to get that data and they're only one year out, but if you have 23% versus 10% down to single immunosuppression, you're cutting in half the number of people yeah. who are going to be subject to that problem. All right. Or nice. the problem, right? Packer alone is a problem, but Mofidil, mycophenolic mofidil is another immunosuppressant. So now you're dual immunosuppressed and have more of a problem. All right. Okay. So good news for the transplantation. Um, it's a happy transplant day. Happy transplant. <laughs> and with that as a note, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Siobhan Burns at University College London in just a moment. Before we get to that, stem cell technologies would like to introduce you to human immunology news. It covers everything from immunotherapy, autoimmunity, and adaptive and innate immunity. Human Immunology News keeps readers current with the latest news, research, policy, events, and jobs relevant to the immunology community. Subscribe for free at www.humanimmunologynews.com. So today, for our second part of the podcast, we have our guest with us. She is a Professor uh, Shibon Burns. 
She is a professor of translation and immunology at the University College London in the UK. And the Burns uh, group focuses on studying the mechanisms behind inborn errors of immunity and immunodeficiencies. And she has multiple publications researching the genetic origins of these uh, errors, their effect on the immune cells uh, in, a, in a patient. And also, I think very interestingly, how she has a lot of clinical experience with these patients. And she uh, has a lot of experience in seeing how these diseases um, manifest themselves on patients and what kind of therapies we have available for people that have these conditions. Uh, Professor Burns, thank you so much for joining us today for the Immunology Podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much. I have to admit, this is the first podcast I've done. Well, there you go. We're happy to be your friend. Yeah. You what being. an honor. <laughs> All right. So when I think inborn errors of immune deficiency, I think like severe common immunodeficiency issues with like antibody formation because you lack some part of that system. But just looking at your CV and the, the, the work you've done, it's clearly much larger than that. So I was wondering maybe to start with, can you been in for the, for audiences who know immunology, but maybe not the causes of errors of, you know, these inborn errors, what the major categories are. So if on the one hand you have, I can't recombine and make antibodies or VJD recombination being a big one. What are the other and including that one, the flavors of inborn error in in uh, immune system that you you see, study, work on, treat. That's a really great question, and um, it is more complicated than it sounds to answer. Mainly because uh, inborn errors of immunity have just exploded over the last decade or so, and so probably. Uh, there are more than 480 known different genetic causes of inborn errors of immunity. Uh, and we've gone from uh, having a situation where most people with immune deficiency were thought to have defects in either T cells, B cells, or both combined, or neutrophils. We're now um, in the situation where inborn errors of immunity encompasses a lot of different types of conditions. Uh, from those that affect predominantly T cells, those that affect predominantly B cells, those that affect both or combined immune deficiencies, um, and then a whole pile of other uh, disorders that impact very specific signaling pathways, or for example, impact the innate immune system. And actually the, the, there is an IUIS uh, categorization, which happens once every couple of years. And that now has eight tables of different types of immune deficiency, which now can include also some things like bone marrow failures that we wouldn't traditionally have thought of as inborn errors of immunity. And within in your clinical practice or in your experience with patients, what are the most common that you see and how, yeah, how does a patient with this deficiencies manifest? How do you find them? Yeah, and so in so I'm an immunologist, and immunologists tend to look after patients with immune deficiencies, inborn errors of immunity that predominantly cause infections. Um, there are other clinicians who might have look after different types of inborn errors of immunity, like, for example, auto-inflammatory disease, which present differently with, for example, unexplained fevers. So, but if we kind of concentrate on my area, which is immune deficiency disorders, um, our patients tend to present with infections as a hallmark feature. 
So either very recurrent infections, unusual things, infections with bugs that you wouldn't expect a healthy person to get, very prolonged infections or serious infections. But they also have a whole range of other um, clinical complications, in particular autoimmunity, um, lymphoproliferation, which is effectively just means big lymph nodes, big spleen, um, and uh, atopy now. So uh, allergy, asthma, hay fever, food allergies, those types of things. So there's a big overlap between autoimmunity, inflammation, and, and infections that many of our patients present with. Um, and it, what kind of patients are most common depends a little bit on whether you're a pediatric immunologist or an adult immunologist. Uh, and I can elaborate on that if you uh, specifically want me to. So do you focus mostly on adults or children for yourself? So now I uh, only see patients, adult patients with immune deficiency. Um, I'm actually originally trained as a pediatric immunologist um, and worked at Great Ormond Street for many years. And then in, in those days, I looked after children with immune deficiencies. Um, and those children tend to present with more severe forms of immune deficiency. For example, severe combined immune deficiency, um, and many of those children actually need to have uh, curative therapy, such as bone marrow transplants, or they don't survive. In adulthood, the vast majority of immune deficiencies are antibody deficiencies, like you alluded to at the beginning. Um, and most of the patients that we look after in our clinic um, in London at the Royal Free Hospital the biggest single group are patients with common variable immune deficiency, which is a predominantly antibody uh, deficiency syndrome, but also associated with the other complications I, I alluded to earlier on, autoimmunity, inflammation, lymphoproliferation. So getting kind of the practical side of things, you're trying to, you have these patients, you want to treat them. Clearly, it's not easy, which is why you also do research to figure out how to treat them. What are the big problems you're trying to tackle with your research so that you can treat people better outside of, I want to know the genetic problem so I can give them gene therapy? Because obviously one treatment's like, you fix their genes and we're getting closer and closer to that. But where, where are the big things that you're going after that you see that, mo that you do in the lab because clinic motivates you for that? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, that's a really good question. So I mean, I'm personally very motivated by trying to find the cause of disease. Um, so my lab focuses uh, on trying to understand how genetic variants um, or genetic mutations impact cell function. Um, and so that can be a range of things from, for example, looking at the sequence, genetic sequences that we have for patients from the clinic, finding a mistake in a novel gene that maybe hasn't been described before, and try to decide if that mistake actually impacts the function of that protein. So that's one, one element. So trying to actually understand what is the diagnosis. And then the other element is really trying to understand um, how does a disease actually come about? And just knowing the genetic mutation doesn't really tell you that because there's a really quite a large gap, I think, in our understanding about how many of the genetic mutations impact the protein that they code for and then how that affects actual immune cells. So quite a bit of the work in my lab is focused on trying to understand how, for example, T cells or B cells or macrophages do or don't function 
if they have a mistake in this particular protein. Um, and I think that's really important because it's really important for multiple reasons. One is because really understanding the pathogenesis in that way at a, at a cell level um, will help us to develop tr better treatments. Um, and you mentioned gene therapy, which of course, I mean, I think in the future is going to play a really big role for our patients, but there are other types of treatment like drug therapies, but we do need to know, for example, does the drug therapy need to impact T cells? Does it need to impact B cells? How are we going to measure if that therapy is effective? Do we have a marker in the lab that we can measure? Um, and these are some of the issues that my lab is trying to address. There's a, another really massive area, which is why is it that patients with genetic mistakes in specific genes actually are also different from each other? So that's a really, um, it's a really fundamental element of, uh, of inborn errors of immunity. And that is the, um, the variation in the clinical phenotype. So even patients, for example, um, in one family can be different from each other in how they present, but even, uh, even more so patients with different mutations in the same gene can present actually quite differently. And so trying to understand uh, whether or not though that is because different mutations impact the protein in different ways, uh, that's a really important um, aspect to understand to try and then, for example, be able to give a better prognosis for patients or to say that certain treatments may be more or less suitable for patients or target patients, for example, for some of the more risky therapies like stem cell transplant. Maybe if, if you would like to elaborate on one of your, of your studies. So I know that you have some, some work done on a stat, uh, for example, signaling and how that affects uh, uh, immune, uh, the immune deficiencies in patients. Do you want to maybe give an example of how you, you, you go about uh, doing with one particular project in your group? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so STAT, um, in, in actual fact, there is a cluster of different uh, mutations in the JAK-STAT pathway that cause different diseases. We've been interested in STAT1 gain of function. And this is a disease where um, the STAT1 protein is overactive because of a genetic mistake. Um, and there are hundreds of different genetic mistakes described in this STAT1 protein that all make the protein overactive. Um, and yet patients who present with STAT1 gain of function disease have got quite a variable phenotype. So most do present with candidate infections, um, which we think is because when STAT1 is overactive, it inhibits the ability of STAT3 to function, and that's important for IL-17 immunity and fungal immunity. So there is that which is common for most patients. Most patients do have a problem with candida, um, but there's a really variable impact in terms of other aspects of the disease like autoimmunity um, and some things which may not even be immunological, like for example, vascular aneurysms. So aneurysms of big blood vessels, uh, for example, in the brain that can cause bleeding. Um, so we have been trying to understand whether different stat mutations function similarly or differently. So do they all have the same gain of function impact on the stat one protein? And the way we approach that was to um, look at all of the stat one described mutations 
and see where they fell in the protein. And this is work done by a PhD student in my lab called Alex McKenna. And Alex identified that actually most of the mutations fall on an interface in the STAT1 dimer. So when STAT1 signals, it either homodimerizes with STAT1 or heterodimerizes with STAT2. And most of the clinically important mutations fall at one of the interfaces of the STAT1 dimer. And Alex then uh, went on to model those mutations in cell lines. So this is a very typical way that we try to address this kind of issue in my lab. So we'll um, make a vector, for example, a lenti vector uh, that encodes a STAT1 protein with either wild type or a gain of function mutation. And then we'll express that in cell lines that don't ideally that don't express any endogenous STAT1 so that all of the STAT1 in the line is the one that you're interested in. And then we can compare the function of those different cell lines to try to understand uh, the function of the STAT protein. And what we have been trying to work out um, is whether or not the proteins that seem to be, sorry, the mutations that seem to particularly impact the binding of STAT1 to DNA are different from the mutations that alter the way that STAT1 dimerizes. Um, there are some particular reasons why that's important. Um, and I think one of them is because it's really important to understand how much of the STAT1 uh, overactivity only happens when the JAK-STAT signaling pathway is activated, for example, by a cytokine, and how much of it is intrinsically due to the way STAT1 functions in the cell, regardless of what signals it gets. And that's important because most of the treatments that we use, drug treatments we use now, are JAK inhibitors, which only inhibit, really, the um, component of STAT signaling that comes from cytokine binding to its ligand and activating the pathway. Whereas if there's actually an intrinsic underlying activation that's not dealt with by those drugs, then the patients are not going to be adequately, um, they're not going to be adequately managed with this kind of treatment approach. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I guess that that's uh, the last point that you make, that there's this functions of, of the STAT proteins that are they're not only signal transduction from the cytokines, they also can have uh, things that are uh, functions that are independent from that direct signaling through through the receptors for specific cytokines. So for example, STAT, STAT1 is mainly um, in the cytoplasm, uh, mm -hmm. but it does shuttle into the nucleus. And there's been a bit of, um, I guess that most of the nuclear STAT occurs after the JAK-STAT signaling pathway is activated, but mm -hmm. there is a low level of STAT1 um, import, importing, imported to the nucleus all the time. And if that STAT1 is overactive, then there may be a degree of um, STAT1 signaling that is background that we can't fix with our current treatment approaches. Right, because then would they ent enter the nucleus uh, dimerizing? Would it be a spontaneous dimerization or just the monomers go to the nucleus in this situation? No, usually the um, there is dimerization in the cytoplasm. So it's usually the dimers that go in. Yeah. And uh, they kind of flip in their conformation between active and inactive states. Um, and if they enter the nucleus, there is some literature suggesting that even in the absence of JAK stimulation, that actually there is a degree of stat activation just by these molecules entering the nucleus. 
Yeah, I guess that that makes sense. I find that so one thing uh, when I when I think about this this kind of uh, research, um, as taking you know, putting aside the fact that you have a person that has some kind of of uh, immune uh, um, alteration, and that's of course very unfortunate. But it feels like sometimes these you can you can learn a lot about immunology by studying people with specific with specific mutations or with specific deficiencies that might actually uh, inform you of something that you didn't know. And because of course, making experiments in people is not a, it's not possible. But having these patients gives you kind of natural experiments in which you can study the function of specific parts of the immune system. Is that something that? Uh, that is there some that that's that's in any way does it look like does it can you use this to improve your understanding of general immunology? Yeah, so this is the, that's the title of the question that I give to the students who do our immunodeficiency and immune therapeutics course: How what two inborn errors of immunity teach us about normal immunology? And uh, I think we've learned a lot. Um, so I think, for example. Um, I'm just uh, trying to think of some specific examples. There are, are quite a lot of different mutations known in the VDJ recombination uh, machinery uh, that's important for, uh, say, for example, antibody production and T cell receptor um, generation. And, and finding patients with those, with those genes, particularly if it's a new, a new gene where the function's not very clear, um, can really help us to then understand uh, what what controls normal immunology. What are the th key things that it control, uh, for example, VDJ recombination? And I don't think that you can get all of this information from mice because at the end of the day, knockout mice are not the same as our patients. Um, and there are you know certain aspects of immunology in mice that we don't necessarily see um, when when we're faced with patients with for example, pretty much the same mutation. Um, and if we take some of the more recently discovered uh, inborn errors of immunity, like CTLA-4 haploinsufficiency, for example, there's really not a lot going on in those, um, sorry, LRBA deficiency was what I was thinking of. There's not a lot going on in those mice, but the humans are really sick. So there's there are aspects of LRBA biology, for example, that our patients can tell us about that really look, just using knockout mice cannot really uh, cannot really tell us about. So to continue kind of on this, when I think stat, I think generally speaking, right, this is 30,000 foot view, immune activation. Yeah. Right? So, but, and so I would think that you, mutations where stats don't work would lead to immune, you know, dysfunction where you have primary immunodeficiency but it sounds like also there's mutations where stats are turned on that lead to immunodeficiency and i think i know why but i was wondering if you could explain how constitutive activation of a pro-inflammatory pathways such as stats leads to a defective immune system yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, and, and I think it's probably fair to say that we haven't really worked it all out yet, but I can kind of give you the give you where I think we are. Um, so it is really a fascinating thing about human um, inborn errors of immunity that within the same gene, you can have gain and loss of function mutations, and they cause two completely different things. So you're absolutely right. If you have loss of function in stat one, 
maybe unsurprisingly, you have a big problem with viral infections because that one's really important for signaling downstream of type one interferons. Um, but if you have step one gain of function, you get these uh, all these other uh, other other issues like candida. And we know that the candida infection is because of poor IL-17 or TH17 um, protection. And I think probably the best explanation I have for that at the current time is that um, many of the biological pathways that we study actually don't operate in isolation. And that's kind of obvious in a way. But when you overactivate one pathway like STAT1, it has impact on other similar pathways like the other STAT pathways. And that may be because, for example, it alters the um, ability of STAT1 to heterodimerize with other STAT molecules. So it kind of acts as it disrupts which dimers are made in the cell. It might be because STAT1, when it, there's a gain of function impact, probably sticks to different parts of the DNA that it shouldn't do, sticks onto different promoters or stays there too long and maybe blocks the ability of other uh, transcription factors to bind to DNA. Um, so there, it, it is fairly well documented, documented that in the context of STAT1 being overactive, STAT3 is underactive. And whether that's direct DNA competition or whether it's, uh, uh, it's competition for other proteins within that signaling pathway, um, I think isn't fully worked out. So I guess that in the end, uh, when it comes to, to therapies for, uh, for these kind of uh, disorders, you mentioned, I think you briefly mentioned uh, bone marrow transplants, and maybe we have some kind of inhibitors, but where is the research? What I also I think in the uh, knowing that nowadays it's easier for us to have early detection, maybe genetic screens and things like that. So what what is the current status of the our the diagnosis and th uh, treatment of these disorders, and where do you think the field is moving to? So. Um... Yeah, there's a massive gap at the moment between our ability to achieve a genetic diagnosis and our ability to change management for patients. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that. Some of it is because we don't really understand how those genetic mutations impact cell function, as we previously uh, discussed. Some of it is because our pathways are affected that we're, we don't really have drug targets for or drugs for, for example, loss of function mutations or haploinsufficiencies in certain things like NF kappa B1. It's not quite so obvious how you would target that with the drug. Um, and at the moment, um, we can achieve genetic diagnosis for quite a few patients, but we're left with a relatively limited number of drug therapies that are actually available. So there are, are drug therapies available for certain pathways that we know are more commonly impacted in immune deficiency, for example, JAK inhibitors for lots of different STAT gain of function, not just STAT1, but STAT6, um, STAT5. STAT3, so JAK inhibitors are one, uh, abatacept for, um, for mutations affecting the CTLA-4 pathway, uh, where CTLA-4 is reduced and abatacept acts as a CTLA-4 mimic. 
And we have um, some drugs to impact, for example, the uh, phosphorylation of AKT, uh, which is another kind of common mechanism that uh, is seen in, in, a, in a few of the diseases. But there are still very many diseases for which we don't really have any specific drug. We, and um, there are, in some of the conditions, manifestations outside the immune system that are complicated to, um, to deal with. And at the current time, um, hematopoietic stem cell transplantation is still widely used in children, but not so widely used in adults. Um, and many of the new genetic diagnoses that we're finding may be in older people outside that very traditional um, early age range when infants got bone marrow transplants, for example, for severe combined immune deficiency. And then it's sometimes a little less obvious what to do with patients if they've survived to later in life, do you want to then go for a high-risk procedure? Are there any particular disorders that do really uh, get worse with age? Because it feels like many of these things, if you survive childhood, looks like you're probably going to be okay, or am I completely misguided? Yeah, so I think I think that's um, bluntly misguided, <laughs> but but it's a common perception, um, and I think commonly, uh, even when I you know when I worked in pediatrics, you 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 felt good if your patients get to eighteen, you think job done. Um, now that of course I've moved over to adult clinical immunology, what you realise is that that is definitely not <laughs> the end of the story and successfully making it to 16 or 18 does not actually mean you're going to be well. So it's probably fair to say that um, for very many of the conditions that we look after, events continue to occur throughout life. And those events could be serious infections. Those events could be the development of new autoimmunity or the development of inflammation. And those events broadly mean that patient's quality of life um, does not improve and in many cases deteriorates. And actually a lot of the immune deficiencies in adulthood have got a reduced survival compared to um, the healthy population. And that is because uh, things happen along the way that make uh, patients unwell and uh, may result in them dying. And a big issue for adults with immune deficiency is organ damage. And some of that's because they've had serious infections, which may, for example, damage your lungs. Um, and, but a lot of it is because of uncontrolled inflammation that still we're not great at managing. And that can result in poor functioning of lungs, poor functioning of gut, poor functioning of liver. Um, the result of that is that patients do poorly and we're still not really in a very knowledgeable position to intervene and stop that process. So it sounds like we could go even further down the path of patient outcomes and such, but unfortunately uh, we, we eventually run out of time to keep these discussions going. But before, before we end, we always ask to like to ask one question that's a little less serious than patient mortality. Uh, so given that, the question for you that we have is, what is the biggest misconception about science that you'd like to correct? If you could just wave your wand and everyone would understand <laughs> in a better way. Well, 
Yeah, so that's a really big question. I think probably, I think one of the biggest misconceptions about science that I would like to correct is that science is going to, in the end, fix everything. So science is amazing. Science is fantastic. And we've made enormous progress. And I'm working in a field where that is absolutely the case. But I'm also pretty convinced that there are many big questions in life, love, faith, and the universe that we're probably not going to answer with science. I guess I have to agree with that. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, I wish science could answer everything, but yeah, that'd be too much power for us. Yeah, that, 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 that's a good point. That's a good point. Stay humble, Jason. Stay humble. Well, I'm saying I don't want that level of power. All right. So it was such a pleasure uh, speaking to you today. Thank you so much for joining, uh, uh, Dr. Burns, for joining our uh, podcast and uh, talking to us about your research and very interesting topic of, of immune, uh, inborn errors of immunity and immunodeficiencies. Um, it's a whole world out there, isn't it? Definitely. Thanks very much. That was very enjoyable. And I hope the listeners enjoy it too. Pleasure. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and random papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com if you have feedback or you would like to suggest a guest. See you next time.